The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content relating to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, Murder Shelf Bookies. I'm Tara. And I'm Jill. For those of you just tuning in, we've been part of a true crime book club for years now and love discussing our books with each other and anyone else who might want to listen about murder. Let's be honest, who doesn't want to talk about true crime and learn something in the process? Yeah. We decided to turn our love of reading and fascination of true crime into a podcast so that we can share it with all of you. This is our second cast where we explore various topics from the book in more detail. Techniques that may have advanced a case, what's in the news, the profile of the killer, who knows? Today we'll be diving deep into issues surrounding the identification and capture of the Golden State Killer. Next we'll discuss the study and impact of geographic profiling and genetic genealogy. Also, who is Joseph James D'Angelo? We'll definitely talk about him and some of the parallels from Michelle's profile and one that we're going to hear from Jill. Finally, we'll discuss that pesky moratorium of the death penalty in California. And of course, our favorite investigator, Paul Holes. Yeah. When this book was written, it was a cold case, and it is no longer. We know who the Golden State Killer is, Joseph D'Angelo, and now we can fill in the blanks. Now let me tell you, murder bookies, there are many instances where Michelle, Paul Holes, and other investigators were spot on in their guesses about this guy. They were on to him, and his days were numbered. Oh, yeah. Joseph D'Angelo's next hearing is coming up on January 22nd, 2020. As of this recording, we still have a few days to go. But with the release of the episode later this week, probably on Thursday, we hope to include an update for you. We doubt he'll talk, but stranger things have happened. Mm -hmm. Regardless, we're going to make sure to keep an eye on this one as it unfolds. Now, let's dive in. Michelle had a file on her computer that listed the basics of a profile that she had put together. Now, most of the stuff that we're going to go over in the next few minutes is verbatim from the book. And these are just the facts that she had on file. It's a composite of all the physical descriptions and some of the MO characteristics that she had put together. So first, he's physically most often described as 5'9 to 5'11 with a swimmer's build. He's lean, but with a muscular chest and noticeably big calves. He has a very small penis, both narrow and short, a nine and a nine and a half shoe size, dirty blonde hair, bigger than normal nose, type A blood type, non-secretor. He used the phone to contact and terrorize his victims, sometimes before an attack, sometimes after, sometimes just hang up phone calls, sometimes with theatrical scary movie deep breathing and threats. He wore ski masks. Where'd you get all the damn ski masks? All kinds of assortments of colors. Because, yeah, we had colors, fabrics, styles. Ski masks are us. <laughs> you think with receipts. He probably bought the whole damn store. I don't know. He always wore gloves, although sometimes he removed them during the rapes. He brought guns. He had what looked like a pen-style navigator flashlight, and that's what he used to startle his victims awake, essentially blinding them. He tore towels into strips or used shoelaces to bind his victims. He had a script, and he stuck to it some variation of do what I say or I'll kill you. He alleged he only wanted money and food. Sometimes he said it was for an apartment. Sometimes he mentioned a van. He would make the woman tie up the man, then separate them. He would stack dishes on the man's back and tell them if he heard a crash, he'd kill the female. He frequently brought baby lotion to the scene to use as a lubricant. He also had a special liking for Vaseline intensive care. 
And remember, he used that to have victims masturbate him with their bound hands. He also liked to steal neighborhood bicycles and escape on them. Some personal items associated with him were a bag with a long zipper, like a doctor's bag, duffel bag, blue tennis shoes, motocross gloves, corduroy pants. He also liked to take driver's licenses and jewelry, particularly rings. So again, may have been part of a set, may have been something just of a personal nature, not necessarily valuable in a monetary detail. Some of the things he said, which may or may not be true, but are nevertheless interesting, he spoke about killing someone in Bakersfield and then moving back to L.A. Of note was, I hate you, Bonnie, being thrown out of the Air Force. And this is where some people have thought that something may have been going on with him in late October of 1977. In two different attacks around that time, he was described as sobbing. Some of the vehicles possibly associated with Iran's was a green Chevy van, 1960s yellow sidestep pickup truck, or a VW Bug. Now we're going to do something a bit different here. Jill is going to give us her own profile of the Golden State Killer. I wish I was so lucky, but I just went to school for psych and criminal justice. But like most millennials, don't use my degree, which is sad, I know. But uh, Jill is a certified psychology educator, having taught psychology for 30 years until she retired six years ago. Since then, Jill has taught about the psychology of serial killers in the Philadelphia area. I took both courses that she taught. Not only is Jill a fun teacher, she's very formative, and her PowerPoints are some of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Oh my gosh, I, thank you. I can't wait for our next episode where we talk about Lizzie Borden, and I really hope she shares that on the <laughs> blog. Um, she's also been a researcher for a private investigator and true crime podcast for the past three years, too, doing some profiling of alleged criminals. And now she's here with me doing this podcast, so I'm going to let her tell you what she thinks. Oh my, thank you for that, that of course. expansive, expansive <laughs> introduction. All right, so this is what I put together on the Golden State Killer prior to his arrest in 2018, because I am really driven to figure out who these guys are and what makes them tick. So he is a serial burglar turned sadistic serial rapist turned hedonist killer. He thrives on a lust and bribe, thrill-based motivation, and he enjoys the planning, the organizing, the prowling, the stalking phase as much as he relishes committing the actual crimes. That's an important point. He's fantasized about these rapes and murders for a long, long time, since he was roughly 10 years old when his emotional development, blossoming sexual urges, and mental imagery began to twist into something dark, resentful of women, and anger-fueled. Pretty young. There's some dysfunction in the family, perhaps child abuse or some triggering event that caused this perverted psychological association to be going on at that age. Because this happens early on. It doesn't happen overnight at 23. He likely began with animals, perhaps even the family pet. He may have hunted to find animals to kill. He would take his anger out on these animals with a rage that is further mixed with these sexual fantasies as he becomes more engaged in this kind of behavior. Now, as a boy, he was probably quiet, not necessarily shy, but not one of those boisterous boys. He'd be part of the group, but still held back, never really sharing what he's thinking or feeling. He had this internal fantasy world that was going to become more and more important as he aged, as he got older. This wound up being locked down really tight inside of him. Jill, I just have a quick question before you continue, since I know in class you taught us about the McDonald triad. Do you see our Golden State Killer as setting fires or wetting the bed? No, no, not for him. 
No, I don't see either. Uh, I think the wetting the bed, he would have been out of control, and he is going to be very much about control. And fire is the same way. It is something that burns and you lose control of. While it can be a fascination, I don't see that as being something that he's going to be getting into. How uncommon would it be to only hit one of those three? The triad has been shown now to be something that can indicate child abuse more than psychopathy. These are still alarm bells going off. If you have a child who is starting to abuse animals, is wetting the bed, and you're seeing he's being a little fire fiend, get some help. Look into this. These things can be handled when they're younger. Don't delay. Get some therapy. Get an evaluation. Not so much a sign of a serial killer, but we do find those traits do correlate. Correlation is not cause and effect, however. Get your kids to the therapist if they're hurting animals, please. Now, with the Golden State Killer... First, the Vizalia ransacker, whose early burglaries and thefts were really not about robbing. They were about the thrill of committing and getting away with these. They were about invading someone else's private domain, handling their personal items, especially women's underwear, violating that privacy, taking only intimate items, one earring, personalized jewelry, tearing up family photos, usually of happy couples. Privacy no longer existed for them. He would then take them, and he did. These people felt violated, devastated, just as he wanted. These items would be his souvenirs, and they would remind him of his fantasies, how he'd acted, the sensations, engaging that dark part of his personality that he kept hidden. The Golden State Killer is intelligent. He's cunning. He's able to evolve, as he's learned from the Visalia break-ins, to the East Area rapes and murders, to becoming this harbinger of death in the original Night Stalker. First and foremost, he is about control and preparation as part of his self-preservation. He put time into reconnaissance and prowling, time away from home, time away from work, which has to be accounted for if anyone dared to hold him accountable, which I doubt. He's not a man who likes to be questioned about where he was or what he'd been doing. He totally got off on this prowling, the peeping Tom activities, the feeling powerful, because he was witness to that which is so personal to a person, a couple, or a family. He illicitly entered their space, knowing what was coming for them. He was, and knew what it meant to victimize them. It made him feel big, powerful, even if his penis was narrow and short. He may be single without significant relationships, but he's more likely married because of his dogmatic mindset about what is and is not appropriate. He should, in quotes, be married by age X, which is likely 23-24 given the norms of the 1970s. Thus, he'd appear fairly normal on the surface to observers. Because he's organized, he has a job, he has a car, likely a Chevy or a Ford, because he's solidly middle class and patriotic. He won't drive a foreign car, only American-made, so probably something like a Chevy Vega. Well, Chevy Vega's a zippy little number. You should look it up. Oh, it is. I had to go and look and see what cars were appropriate for the 70s, and that seemed to match him. He'd probably serve in the military in Vietnam due to the era, and because he's intelligent, attended college, and it's speculated that he may have attended Sac State. As he's able to thwart law enforcement all over the state of California— It's some speculate that he's in law enforcement itself. He lives a middle-class existence, however, no more, no less. He would have a daily routine, and disrupting it would never be a good idea. Spaghetti is Tuesday nights, Wednesday is meatloaf nights. I die. (laughs) Uh, Exemplifying this kind of, like, inflexible routine and demeanor. 
moving among the normal. He is neat, orderly, meticulous, and that may have caused some friction because only he could put things away properly or clean the car the way it's supposed to be. I have to interject here only because sometimes I worry about my significant other. He (laughs) likes to think that I create piles of papers, and if I don't put them away, he might be in trouble. Oh, this is not me. I have I have organized piles where I know where everything is. I see organized piles. Organized piles. I know exactly where everything is located. Yeah, this guy has a low tolerance threshold. Criticism would come in sharp, loud rebukes. Lots of yelling going on in this household. He's likely critical, especially of family and females. Never going to reach his approval levels. He would never live up to his expectations. Golden State Killer would rarely joke. His affect is going to be very serious, introspective, secretive. And he's not going to have a lot of close male friends. Why would he have anybody close? (laughs) Well, he's going to be friendly to a point, but still more of a loner. He's not going to be part of the male bowling league or the baseball league or hang out in pool halls. Well, how can he when he's spending most of his time hopping fences, crawling on rooftops, peeping in windows? Exactly. You've got it. He's got his other hobbies to attend to. He's organized, prepares, double checks his groundwork. He might talk to himself as he's like working out problems or rehearsing. When stressed, he's going to remain intellectually sharp. Eyes are going to kind of dart around. He's going to acquire a great deal of information prior to doing anything, let alone attacking someone. During stress, he's going to try to control the situation to reduce anxiety he might be feeling. His foot's going to shake or his fingers are going to tap on the table. He's one of those people that, you know, that that knee is going a mile a minute. Watch out for those ones. And he's going to show nerves or agitation. We know from witness accounts that he stalks and selects his victims, indicating very predatory behaviors. We know he formulates a very effective plan and he sticks to his plan. If there's deviations, it causes great frustration and anxiety, which is going to heighten his alertness. Early on, survivors described him as tying, untying, and retying their arms and legs. And that indicates some hesitancy, some uncertainty, but that's going to ebb as his technique improves. And it did. He enjoys tying his victims up and being in control of them utterly, keeping them completely helpless, perhaps like he was completely helpless as a child. We know he covers his face to protect his identity. We know he enjoys dehumanizing, degrading, humiliating the victims. Terrorizing them is of paramount importance to this guy. He asked them, what am I doing during the rapes to embarrass them, to make them cower? Because this is his turn to be all-powerful giving orders, not like when he was small and vulnerable. He's made these victims helpless, so he will never feel helpless again. Causing them to be fearful, afraid of dying, gives him a huge sense of satisfaction. He is the controller of their fate. When he goes silent, working in the background, letting his victims think he's gone, that their ordeal is finally over, that they're safe, that they can get help, and then suddenly he's there. I am. Their fear skyrockets and it's back higher than before. They're raw, that stark terror. He loves it and he feeds on that. I feel like you need a pair of scissors. Yeah, really. And then he shouts at them, shut up or I'll slit your throat. Shut up, I'll stick a knife in you. Do you feel this knife? I'll put it into you. That sexual connotation there. Be quiet. Don't make a sound. Don't move. I'll put a bullet through you. You'll be dead. Do you feel this gun? These plates jiggle. Your daughter's dead. Who else is in the house? causing them to talk, which violates his first instruction to shut up, all causing confusion and consternation in his victims. 
And then he's using two different weapons. Is it a gun? Is it a knife? Which complicates his MO. He is a sexual sadist who enjoys inflicting pain and psychological abuse on his victims. And this is what he enjoys the most. Since he's had these fantasies for years, he requires a sexually deviant ritual to be satisfied, one that has recurrent urges to engage in the ritual, causing the cyclical nature of a serial rapist killer. That's why they're repeated over time. The urge returns, the demand, and the need. This killer uses ligatures to gain physical control over his victims, tying their hands behind their back to the point they lose all feeling and turn black. The knots he uses are unusual and entirely unnecessary for securing victims, therefore outside the MO and part of the psychology of what's happening. These knots mean something to him aside from security. Bondage has meaning for him, arousing him, and it's likely part of his normal sex outside these criminal activities. Without ligatures, he probably cannot become sexually aroused. I'd seen Unmasking the Killer on HLM, where Leslie D'Ambrosia, a special agent and criminal profiler in the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, was being interviewed on the Golden State Killer, and it was gratifying when she said the same thing I was thinking regarding this guy. Golden State Killer also made obscene phone calls to his victims, both before the attacks and sometimes years later, decades later. Remember when we played. God, I hate him. All right. How horrifying. To them, the Golden State Killer could have been any older white man out there with a phone. Any one of them. And he's inserting himself back into the lives. It's a new kind of psychological rape. He basks in the fear he's producing at a distance, still unknown as he re-victimizes them. Making these crude calls arouses him, and it's actually a behavior called scatologia. It tells you how strong his sexual fantasies are, how this dominates his life so completely, how absorbed into his own head he is, languaging in these memories, reliving these rapes and murders over and over, completely introverted, festering inside his own mind, reliving the malignancy that led to 50 rapes and 13 murders. Just to go back a little bit, we're talking about the 70s here. There are no cell phones. How much effort is he putting in to actually writing down these phone numbers. Where is he putting them? Does he have them in a secret little hidey hole? So that way, if he is married, nobody's like, hey, why do you have all these women's numbers? You know, I heard one of these phone calls. That's terrifying. There are the sounds of women's voices in the background, possibly children. So he made the call from home. Hmm, fun. That's also what made me think that he's probably married long before he was captured. So I don't remember that one. I just remember the one that he said, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. I've listened. It's creepy. So home phone, dial a number. I'm sure he might have them memorized. I don't know. I mean, the only other way he could do is go to a pay phone. He probably has them written down. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure. Well, he's got souvenirs, so he probably has them tucked away somewhere. Mm -hmm. He's got that one earring. Yeah, that's true. That personalized jewelry. The Golden State Killer now is completely obsessed with what he's done. He relives these fantasies with the souvenir he's taken. And this is how he sustained himself mentally since 1986 with the murder of Janelle Cruz after five years of inactivity. I think he almost lost that fight with Sherry Domingo and Greg Sanchez. So after five years, he doesn't choose a couple. He chooses one victim, a young girl, 18 years old. His narcissism tells him that he can handle this girl alone. And he did, even though Janelle fought back. You know, he also made phone calls to law enforcement, mocking them that he had his next victim picked out and that they couldn't stop him. 
He's so much smarter, so far superior, so calculating, and they're dullards. They're, they're idiots. This strokes his ego, feeds his narcissism, and just fills that empty hole in his soul. And that's my profile on the Golden State Killer. Whew. I don't know about you guys out there, but uh, I know both of us in here are kind of a little jittery about all this because it's, it's super intense and... I'm shaking. We've got mind sludge going on. We read a book about BTK where he basically talked to the author a little bit too, and we know he was kind of slowing down, getting a little bit older. Do you think that's why he never killed anybody after he killed Janelle, after he took a shot at just killing one lone girl? Yeah, I do think that the Sherry Domingo and Greg Sanchez murder scared him. I think he saw Janelle five years later and just couldn't help himself. He just wanted one more try. But he's 40, 41 yeah. at this point. He's probably not hopping fences or climbing up on people's Yeah, houses. she fought back. There was definite evidence that she had fought back. And I think he just realized, this is beyond me now. I'm going to get caught. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get hurt. Uh, BTK stopped. You see the Green River Killer, he stopped. They do wind down. Zodiac stopped. I'm sure like uh, in, with male serial killers, testosterone might have a little bit to do with it. We know male libido ebbs, and I think that fuels it, and I think that's why you have the taking of souvenirs to relive those fantasies. That's why I think he did sustain himself through 2018 anyway. I hate this guy. Yeah. Tara and I are happy to promote the Thread Network, which is the first true crime dashboard that lets followers search, save, share, and submit information on unsolved cold cases in all one place. Adding new cases each day, users can view materials on Susan Cox Powell, Amy Mihalovic, John Benet Ramsey, and Alyssa Turney. Follow them on Instagram at The Thread Network or register today at www.thethreadnetwork.com to join in the discussion. Let's shed some light in the dark on these cold cases. The Thread Network, where true crime content and community come together. (laughs) I needed that. So Michelle wanted to take the profile even one step further by using geographic profiling to catch the killer. Using a criminal profile alone, especially when the term serial killer didn't even exist yet back in the 70s, in addition to a physical description that didn't quite add up based on the Visalia attack and the East Area description that we have, just really wasn't going to catch this guy. She said in the book, My feeling is that the two most important locations are Rancho Cordova and Irvine. The first and third rapes were only yards apart in Rancho Cordova. He walked away in an unhurried fashion from the third attack without his pants on, suggesting he lived close by. I guess that would be the only way I would leave my pants, right? I wear pants. Yeah. Yeah. I know we talked about this previously where even you had said he must have known that he was confident enough to go back and get them. <laughs> yeah. He had to have left them somewhere. I guarantee you he just wasn't running around without pants on. I still wouldn't, but hey, that that's just me. <laughs> yeah. um, so he murdered Manuela Within on February 6, 1981 in Irvine. Five years later, he murdered Janelle Cruz. Manuela and Janelle lived in the same subdivision, just two miles apart. Interestingly, Manuela's answering machine tape was stolen in that attack. Remember when we talked about it last episode? Mm-hmm. Was the suspect's voice on that tape? If so, was he worried it was recognizable as someone in the neighborhood? It was a very reasonable supposition. Absolutely. Another piece that we picked up from the book was that there was a document Michelle created in August of 2014 entitled Geo Chapter. And this has her rethinking the map after more than three solid years of nonstop research. When you open it, there's just one line. 
Carmichael seems like central clearing, like a buffer zone. For those of you not looking at a map, and we could always put one up on the blog, Carmichael is right next to Citrus Heights, where the Golden State Killer lived for decades. That is where Joseph D'Angelo was apprehended with Citrus Heights. And from central Carmichael to his house is now a 23-minute car ride. Yeah, so you figure back in 1970-whatever, it was a 15-minute car ride. Yeah. A lot less congestion back then. I would say so. Geographic profile can really be a powerful tool. By using the geographic nature of serial crimes, again, these cyclical crimes that are repeated, by using the geographic nature of serial criminal events and known offender residences, detectives can narrow their searches to the most probable offender. What this does is it reduces the area law enforcement needs to patrol and investigate. So you can focus your resources where they'll get most bang for their buck. Seems pretty smart. Right. What they do is they analyze the behavior of criminals. They don't want to commit crimes too close to home. So they keep their distance to keep the police off their trail, especially if they're going to be bringing in bloodhounds. Which they did in our case. Yep, absolutely. But they don't want to commit crimes too far away from home because you want to be familiar with escape routes, traffic patterns, security risks. You want to leave your pants off. Right. (laughs) And you don't want to accidentally fall into a drainage ditch. Exactly. Yeah. Or a road construction or something. So what winds up happening is they're going to construct, like Michelle wrote, a buffer zone around their own residence where they're most comfortable. And these spots can be identified by plotting the locations of crimes, body dumps, etc. So what Michelle and Paul Holes were aware of is this criminal spatial behavior. For example, commuters, commuter criminals travel to commit crimes like the Golden State Killer did. He'll travel to different neighborhoods and towns that are similar to their own. Another type is the marauder. He'll commit crimes in his own neighborhood. In the Sacramento area, the geo profile shows a marauder at work. He's branching out from an anchor point. An anchor point is the location where the offender leaves to go commit the crime. So it's usually the home of the criminal. Could be his workplace or even maybe a school. Maybe in a girlfriend's house or something. Down in East Bay, Holes was convinced that he was using the 680 corridor, that highway, to find victims. And at that point, he shifts into becoming a commuter. We know that Joe D'Angelo was transferring police departments at this time. What do we think? Do offenders commit crimes in neighborhoods that are similar to the ones they live in? And can this information be used to help focus profile results? Results show burglars will commit crimes in neighborhoods that are similar, so they will blend in. So we were talking about Anchor Point at that one time, and we were focusing on Rancho Cordova and Irvine as uh, being the neighborhoods that the Golden State Killer may have came from or lived in. Compared to those, he did choose similar neighborhoods. He preferred single-story, second housing from the corner homes, near a field, undeveloped tract of land, and at this time, they were building all over the place, similar types of developments. Right, residences were going up. Drainage areas all over the place. What we also learned from Michelle in the book is about these Eichler homes, and he was an architect. He lived in a similar house in the area, and he came back, and then he started developing homes within these tracks. And what these look like, you can go online and find them. They look fairly plain on the front side, but in the back, it's all windows. These are perfect for spying on your neighbor or someone who wasn't your neighbor. As you know, when you turn the light off at night, what do you see when you look out a big wall of windows? Mm -hmm. Your reflection. You don't see outside. 
So someone can easily spy on you from there. And that's where I think he was so successful in the plotting and the planning and figuring out who his next victim was. A couple of detectives also tested a prowling theory. One night they decided to dress all in black and they went snooping around one of the neighborhoods and they said it was absolutely amazing what they could find out or see. So in combination with breaking and entering while no one was home, I just think that given the extent of the prowling and the watching, it would have been easy to really become familiar with the layout of the neighborhood and especially the home. He was effective, very, very effective in learning who his victims were before the attack. And for years, criminologists have analyzed crime data, crime patterns, sociodemographic trends to identify crime hotspots. And this is so that we can try to prevent crimes and apprehend criminals before something like this occurs again. Well, you need to, to analyze this likely location of residences, look to possible potential criminal locations, so you can set up surveillance. I mean, that makes sense. Dr. Ken Rosmo, he's a very famous geographic profiler. What he said was that geographic profiling is best thought of as an information management strategy that can assist in serial violent crime investigations. It doesn't give you an X marks the spot, but it does allow you to focus investigative efforts. That's what this is. It's a tool. So how do they actually do this? To me, it was just magic. Using a series of perpendicular and triangulating lines, according with known ear attacks, Paul Hulls was able to pinpoint a small area on the map where the killer potentially lived. Literally, the intersection of Dewey Drive and Madison Avenue. Rosmo did the same thing, and his anchor point was just a half mile northwest of Calls at Cull Avenue and Milburn Street. Until DNA linked them together, no one would have put two and two together. The attack pattern in Sacramento was very, very different from the one perpetrated in East Bay. So now we're going to get into DNA profiling, and we're going to do a brief history for all you buffs out there. We know that this might have been a little bit heavy in Michelle's book, so we just kind of want to cover it just a little bit here. And the reason why she wrote so extensively on this subject for I'll Be Gone in the Dark is because she believed that the DNA profile was the key. And it was. It was. It really was. She was absolutely right. So considered to be the father of fingerprinting, Alec Jeffrey changed the forensic science and criminal justice landscape forever in 1984 when he discovered a way to display differences between individuals' DNA. That's a eureka moment, literally, for law enforcement as we know it. And genetic fingerprinting was born. In the early 1990s, Orange County began incorporating DNA testing. Unfortunately, it moved like molasses when you take that jar and it's just so slow. If you can only imagine this as we go through the early 90s, it would literally take four weeks for a criminalist to work one case. And once a profile is made, who wants to share? Certainly not jurisdictions. Oh, oh, for, oh God, forbid. Don't, don't get us started on this, please. No. But we'll talk about it more. But God forbid. The DNA Identification Act of 1994 then established the FBI's authority to maintain a national database, which we know and love as CODIS, or yes. the Combined DNA Index System. How does CODIS work, one might ask? Michelle put it, best imagine it as the top of a vast forensic science pyramid. The bottom consists of hundreds of local crime labs throughout the country. Labs take unknown DNA samples from crime scenes, along with certain suspect samples, and input into state databases. In California, those samples are uploaded automatically every Tuesday. The state is also responsible for DNA collection from jails and courthouses and state databases will take all collected samples and run them through a verification process and an interstate comparison that samples are finally bumped up into CODIS. And Michelle finalizes speedy, efficient, thorough. 
But that's so in the mid 1990s. So you tell me it's test tube Tuesdays? Yes. Gotcha. I guess that's okay, right? Yeah. I guess we're doing it regularly. Sure. But if we don't share, then what's the point? So <sighs> I guess we're trying to hear a CODIS. So moving forward into June of 1996, this is two years after the uh, DNA Identification Act and CODIS came out, we have our first cold hit. Yay! The perpetrator here was a man named Gerald Parker. And believe it or not, this cold hit, this first one we ever got, identified him as a serial killer linked to the deaths of five women. There was a sixth victim. She was pregnant at the time and lost her unborn child. Her husband, it's always the husband, was tried and convicted and actually spent about 16 years in prison for the assault. He ended up being exonerated and released from prison, but ironically, Parker was only a month away from being released from prison when the match was made via CODIS. So now, he's still behind bars, thankfully. I'm not sure if he's dead or not yet, but he's not out on the streets, thank goodness. So from 1972 to 1994, Orange County investigated 2,479 homicides with DNA analysis, and they were able to clear 1,591. 900 remain unsolved. And sexual assaults are prioritized as those perps tend to be repeat offenders. Hmm. Stereo rapist, anyone? Mm-hmm. Here we go. So Michelle introduces us to Mary Hong, who's one of the criminalists tasked with concentrating on cold cases. And Jim White, who we mentioned last episode, was the criminalist who was on the scene at the Harrington and Whiffen murders. He pulls her aside because he just, he can't forget that he feels that this is the same guy. Two words, he says to her, Harrington, Whiffen. And with context, I always thought it was the same guy. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think anyone could give an explanation about this as brief and concise as Michelle. She said, quote, a forensic scientist working to develop a genetic profile will first extract available DNA from a biological sample, semen, blood, hair, then isolate, amplify, and analyze it. Think of it as a human barcode. Can you imagine if you have a barcode on the back of your neck? They just scan it like a a piece of fruit. That's coming. I swear you, it's coming. There are 13 standard CODIS markers. The likelihood of any two individuals, except identical twins, having the same human barcode is roughly one in a billion. Mary Hong makes her way back to Jim White. Harrington Whiffen. Same guy. Same guy. Now we're connecting dots here, and we're going to find more connections. So at the close of 1996, Mary is looking over an Excel spreadsheet featuring about 20-plus unsolved cases in which a DNA profile had been successfully put together. She did more than a double-take. I probably would have, too. But one of the sequences matched the Harrington and Whiffen profile. It now was linked to another case. Dot, dot, dot. See those dots? They're being connected. And this was to the killer of Janelle Cruz. Hong faxes the Harrington, Within and Cruz DNA profile to hundreds of crime labs. And guess what? No hits. Ugh. Who is this guy? Where is this guy? And there is a couple possible theories that are being thrown out there. He never committed a felony. Well, he could have, but was just never caught for it, which right. seems... Pretty weird. He's well-educated, and he comes from a well-to-do family. And we know with money, sometimes you get cover-up, but we won't go there. And at this point in time, Larry Poole, our seasoned detective, was transferred into Clue, which was the countywide law enforcement unsolved elements. Aren't these acronyms terrific? Clue. Clue. I love love that game. Great board game. Maybe we'll play it for you one time during one of the podcasts. Just sit here and listen to it. Of course. I'll be Colonel Mustard. 
And as we know, with Larry Poole, cold cases suited him very well. He would, quote unquote, launch a command in his brain, similar to casting a line. I like to think of like fly fishing Mm -hmm. until sometime later when the answer just came to him. Wish it would just come to me. But um, yeah, the cardboard box actually containing three cases. So the Harrington, Within, and Cruz cases. And this became his new assignment. And Poole notices as he's going through some of these files that there's a Ventura Police Department case number in the margin of the Harrington file, which he finds belongs to the murders of Lyman and Charlene Smith. Follow those little breadcrumbs. Mm-hmm. Or as we like to say, dot, dot, dot. Yep, more dots. On February 17th, 1998, Poole receives Hong's report. And so this was the DNA profile that matched Harrington with Ming Cruz. And looking back to Domingo and Sanchez, which had a similar M.O., and the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department still, whatever, maintained that our man was not responsible. Go figure. But this was even after Orange County linked the crimes by M.O. to the original Night Stalker. So here's all of our five murder cases that are essentially combined, even if we don't want to acknowledge the fact that they're connected. Territoriality. I know, it sucks. Mm-hmm. Jurisdiction. Anyway, I'm getting upset now about it. In uh, 2011, a DNA profile was developed from genetic material found on a blanket at one of the crime scenes. The Galita cases were linked inexplicably to Eron's. No one ever told Debbie, Debbie Domingo that her mother's killer may have been responsible for other crimes. And unfortunately, she found out in the early 2000s when a true crime program started to profile the Ons case, which is pretty tough. That's real tough. Watching TV and you find out that your mom was killed by someone connected to a bunch of other cases. Yeah, that's gotta be tough. That had to have been traumatic, yeah. And then now, conclusively, as we said before, we had a series of linked murders from October 1979 to May 1986. Ten bodies, two survivors. And that was when Larry Poole made a statement. Our killer is the original Night Stalker. Meanwhile, in Contra Costa County, enter Paul Holes into the equation. John Murdoch, who was working at Contra Costa County Sheriff's Office, starts to fill in Paul Holes on who is ear. Now, what to say about Paul Holes? He is a police investigator with a science background. He started off on the police beat, but as he got more into the investigative sides of things, you could not get the man out of the lab. Uh, Not to mention he is a true crime hunk. Hashtag. Hot for holes. Look it up on Instagram. You might see him blush. Oh, every time. (laughs) Every time. Murdoch explains that Sac County Sheriff's Department has gotten nowhere, sundown procedures, collective dread. As mysteriously as he's appeared in East Sacramento, he was gone. And after a two-year reign of terror from uh, 76 to 78, Holes asked, well, what happened then? And Murdoch says, well, he resurfaced in East Bay. He came to us. Now, at this time, the statute of limitations on rape was about eight years. Today, after much protest and advocacy by women, it's substantially longer. And since these cases were no longer prosecutable, law enforcement would destroy the evidence in property rooms routinely to make room for current cases under investigation. All ear jurisdictions in Northern California destroyed the evidence long before DNA was an option. But Contra Costa County had not. Thank God. Yeah. A few good folks noted the seriousness of the crimes committed by ear, and they made the decision to preserve the evidence to treat the case as if it was a homicide way back in 1978 and 1979. Now I get that there's statute of limitations for a reason, But considering that there's a lot of dots being connected, 
Like, why would they go back and destroy all of this evidence? I mean, I know it's to clear out things, but this guy is obviously a problem. I think routine procedure did not keep up with technological developments. And you're talking late 70s versus mid 80s. If things had happened technologically a little bit sooner, the story might have been different. But we do have one jurisdiction here that kind of gets it. And we're really, really fortunate that they held on to that. Mm -hmm. These were serious crimes. They recognized that. And these the, the people who made that decision are my heroes. They got it. And mind you, they took this stuff home so that it wouldn't get destroyed. Some of them did, yeah. Yeah. So in July of 1997, Paul Holes pulls the ear rape kits from the property room, and he wants to see what evidence he may be able to coax from them. He gets on the phone with Larry Crompton, a name that we are familiar with, and inquires about areas that hadn't been followed up on. When ear disappeared from East Bay in the summer of 79, Crompton's bosses cheered. Crompton panicked. This guy was escalating, and he was making more threats to kill, was being more severe, but looser. He was starting to shed his inhibitions. And this is where we run into that jurisdictional static, which frustrates us to no end. As you may have noticed. Yes, we said. (laughs) When police departments are not cooperating, crimes don't get solved. When police departments cooperate, it may help solve crimes quicker and keep these monsters off the street. So Larry Compton explains that uh, in the early 1980s, he gets a call from a fellow cop who says there are rumors that Santa Barbara has a couple cases, one a homicide similar to what he's working with. So he gives them a call. Uh, Nope, nothing like that here, of course. Fast forward to 1997, and Compton is on the phone with Paul Hulls. And he says, you know, I'm telling you, Paul, down south, start with Santa Barbara. I heard there's something like five bodies down there, and I know it's him. So Paul's calls, and guess what? He gets shut down, too. Click. Click. (laughs) As he's calling around various police departments, he runs into a name you'll recognize, Mary Hong. Over the years, crime labs around California where the Golden State Killer was active had varying degrees of what were considered cutting-edge technology. Some of the labs didn't have the requisite funds to have the most up-to-date equipment, but 2001, Holes finally got the chance to process some of the old ear-ons evidence and compare it to DNA found at the scene of some of the unsolved homicides in Southern California. Holes had discovered the missing DNA link, and this was it. All the cases were connected. Now, Paul Holes told me that he... You're so lucky you got to meet him. Sorry to interrupt, but you're so lucky. (laughs) I was blessed. I truly was blessed. He told me he had used the strategy of analyzing why STR genealogy first, and he worked on this for years. Now, humans have two chromosomes. The male has an XY, and the Y is passed along male lineage, pretty much intact, same as the father, grandfather, great-grandfather, all the way back, unchanged. And usually, it's passed along with the same surname. So by testing and exploring whysearch.org, you can find and examine the patrilineage to get a surname of the offender. He worked on this for years. Unfortunately, in the case of the Golden State Killer, that gene pool for that Y is just not well represented in that public database. So he hit a dead end. But remember, every failure is one step closer to success. On April 4th, 2001, the public learns that ear ons are the same guy. This is in the newspaper. 
San Francisco Chronicle, DNA links 70s rapes to serial slaying cases. Sacramento Bee, new lead found in serial rapes after decades. DNA links ear to crimes in Orange County. I mean, the news is out there. These headlines must have triggered ear, however, and it got him thinking and fantasizing. Two days after linking the ear rapes and murder and the original Night Stalker murder made the news, on April 6, 2001, woman answers her phone on Thornwood Drive. She's lived here for 30 years, although her last name has changed. The voice is low. He spoke slowly. She recognized it immediately. Remember when we played? Instant terror by this survivor who immediately recognized the guttural whisper of the man who had raped her. Unfortunately, no one had warned the surviving rape victims that the DNA evidence proved that their rapist was one and the same. I guess just because this is such a monumental scale, I don't want to necessarily say it's bad police work, but still, you have a lot of people out there where this guy has never been caught. It's going to be in the news. He's going to be reading it. And especially if this was such a prominent behavior that he did back in the 70s, do you not think he's going to start doing this? I'm sure they were so excited by their discovery that that may have not occurred, that this might trigger him to reach out to some of the surviving victims, Mm -hmm. even though he was known for phone calls. He is not sensitive, and we know some cops tend to not be so sensitive sometimes, too. So They're also working a case that has just come to life, Mm -hmm. and now they have a lot of information in folders, and maybe they'll share some of it with each other. (laughs) Dear God, please. (laughs) I'm not going to hold my breath, but maybe. maybe. Wait, what's worse? Sharing evidence or calling the cops if you see something strange. I I, I don't have an answer. <laughs> two, two of the things that just are completely mind-boggling to us throughout this whole 40-year-long expedition of finding out who the Golden State Killer was. Well, now we have video cameras everywhere. Mm-hmm. Thank God. Exactly. And they don't lie. Something good can happen. As the years roll by, though, our DNA technology is going to continue to improve. It is going to get faster. It's going to require a lot less amounts for samples to be viable. And what Michelle really wanted to do was get the genetic profile of the Golden State Killer uploaded into GEDmatch. And GEDmatch is an online database that takes information from other DNA sites and compiles it into one place. It can show links between DNA profiles, the parentage, siblings, half-siblings, Varying degrees of cousins like first, second, third, fourth, and even more are produced, which is crazy. This this can go back generations, and it's similar to what you would find if you were to submit your spit to um, Ancestry. And On 23andMe, 23 I have literally a thousand DNA relatives. That's a lot. Yeah. yeah, that's a ton. Unlike other sites, GEDmatch is public, which means law enforcement can use it to their advantage in ongoing investigations when all they have is DNA evidence. But remember, you have to choose to opt in. More about that later. At GEDmatch, D'Angelo and four other white males showed up on the same family tree as a GEDmatch user. This gave the genealogist Barbara Ray Venter and Paul Holes a place to begin building a family tree. And from an interview with Paul Holes from Monster the Zodiac, which is another really great true crime podcast. Fantastic. He says, and this is a quote, The tree that we ultimately linked together when we found the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo, the common ancestors have been born in the 1840s. Once we started identifying all their descendants, that family tree grew very quickly to have well over 1,000 individuals entered into this tree. So basically like what you just said, thousands. Most of them were long dead because they're just ancestors, but you have to identify everybody. 
You don't want to miss that one person who could potentially be the parent of your offender. It took us four and a half months from the time we got the initial DNA search results to the time that D'Angelo was taken into custody. Four and a half months. And here you've been working on this DNA genealogy through different avenues for years. So Holtz ends up doing his due diligence on following up with the newly created suspect list that he gets. And he stumbles upon an old engagement article for Bonnie Caldwell and Joseph D'Angelo. Is it her? Is it that Bonnie? Remember, I hate you, Bonnie, is what he had said during one of his attacks. He called to discuss Joe with Bonnie, and she told him the story about how he stood outside her window one night, pointing a gun at her, trying to force her to go to Reno with him and get married after she broke off their engagement. Although still skeptical because D'Angelo was a former police officer, he has agents tell D'Angelo to collect the DNA. The first swab was inconclusive as there were three profiles, so they needed more evidence. And the second sample was collected after waiting outside his home for the trash to be taken out. So be careful with your trash if you're on suspect list. (laughs) Um, And then the swab that was ran, the DNA match was positive. They have him. Yep, this is the guy. And this has obviously been stirring up controversy due to privacy concerns and the perception of what information law enforcement is actually able to see versus what they are not. Holes explains that as he has used GEDmatch, he did not have to access anyone's DNA profile or information, only that he received a list of people who shared the DNA profile that he created, in addition to the percentages of DNA that those people shared. And this technique is actually less invasive than actual police investigative techniques where they may actually take possession of your DNA. So a a cotton swab or some of your spit or basically forcing your DNA away from you in whatever manner they see fit. And many sites also have posted notices to those submitting DNA that the database that they are submitting to can be used for law enforcement purposes. And larger companies like 23andMe, Ancestry.com, and a few others do require a subpoena or a search warrant for police to gain access to their record. Something Paul Holes stressed, law enforcement does not use your DNA when they're using DNA genealogy. This was incredibly important to him. None of your DNA is touched, used, analyzed. All they do is generate a list of matching DNA relatives. The rest of it is pure, normal genealogy. So your personal DNA is safe, secure, private, and untouched by law enforcement. What's important today, I said you had to opt in to allow law enforcement to generate these DNA connections. If you choose to upload your raw DNA profile from 23andMe or Ancestry or whatever site you're using to GEDmatch or FamilyTreeDNA.com, I've already done this. And this allows me to passively assist law enforcement in connecting old cases, finding unknown killers and thugs, because I decided to help. I couldn't sleep at night not knowing that I was at least doing that much to help. Now, a company called Verigen recently purchased GEDmatch. It is a for-profit company, and the CEO, Brett Williams, has said and made perfectly clear that GEDmatch is a tool for police and law enforcement to solve violent crimes. And as Slate.com reported, it is a molecular eyewitness. I like this, and while I want DNA criminology used responsibly, I think it has an incredible capacity to solve cold cases. And in 2019, it has solved over two. 100 to date. 
and that's pretty substantial, 200 today after 2018, because I know Golden State Killer was one of the first cases where they were able to use this technology. And again, we will stress, we will caution, while we'll be able to solve many cold cases in this manner, close relatives of the actual culprit can fall victim to the law enforcement personnel who rely solely on genetic genealogy to solve cold cases. So law enforcement must be meticulous in reviewing all evidence where we rely on second and third cousins or ancestral relatives. We, again, cannot stress this enough. Paul Holes cannot stress this enough. He will tell you the exact same thing. Do not stop with the DNA profile in catching a perpetrator. No, you'll continue to investigate and use all the tools at your disposal. You don't rely ever on just one tool. So we just want to take a minute and talk about some other more recent cases that have actually been solved with forensic genealogy. And one of the first, and this is so interesting that we found, um, there was a YouTube series out there and it's called Framed by the Golden State Killer. And this was about Donna Jo Richmond. She's 14 years old and she was murdered after she was abducted while riding her bike the day after Christmas in 1975. Oh, how horrible. And this was in Exeter, California, which is fairly close to a lot of our uh, GSK sites. Mm -hmm. And so family would claim, and they still do, that the man convicted, Oscar Clifton, was innocent. There's even speculation that the Golden State Killer was responsible. Same time period, same location, similar MO. And family members and investigators believe that Clifton was framed. In a position as a police officer, Joe D'Angelo could plant evidence, which is one of the theories that is involved in, in that particular series. And it's really short. I think there's four parts and there may be about 10, 10 minutes a piece. Um, so we do recommend watching that. Did he do it? We don't want to dive too deep again. It's something to watch as it's another side to this 40-year saga that we've been talking about these these last two episodes. And again, it's uh, ABC 10 on YouTube, framed by the Golden State Killer. And ultimately, though, not to spoil it, the DNA genealogy did clear the Golden State Killer of this particular murder. So while it wasn't solved, he was cleared of it. Another one was the Potomac River Rapist, and he was recently caught using forensic genealogy after almost 30 years of hiding in the shadows, similar to our Golden State Killer. And while not a serial killer, he again was a serial rapist thought to have raped over 10 women in the D.C. metro area and killing one in the process. This dude was mean. He also sexually assaulted an 18-year-old babysitter and a young mother while the one-year-old was in the house. Giles Daniel Warwick was arrested and taken into custody in Conway, South Carolina, where he had been living for some time, and is planned on being expedited to the D.C. area where he will face charges. So again, this is recent. It's going to be interesting to watch these cases go to trial or watch the plea deals or whatever happens mm -hmm. with this, because these haven't been tested in court yet. Exactly. I think the public has enough of a positive understanding of DNA to know how it works by now. I think it's going to be very interesting to continue following a lot of these, too. Keep an eye on Giles Daniel Warwick. Another case, the police used public familial genealogy sites to their advantage in finally catching uh, Giles, and a series of six rapes was connected by the same DNA in the early 90s. We didn't have the same technology that we do have today. So similar to Holes and other armchair detectives in the GSK case, detectives uploaded a sample profile of the rapist DNA online. The police were provided links to family members, and after extensive interviews, they were able to determine that Warwick may be responsible for the crimes. So again, ongoing. A Canadian couple, Jay Cook and Tanya Van Koylenberg, were both found murdered, roughly 80 miles apart on Thanksgiving Day, 1987. 
in Sonomish County, Washington. Semen was found on her body and the hem of her pants. DNA was collected, but due to limited technology of the times, like so many others, this case went cold. This is a monumental case for the baby science of forensic genealogy as the conviction of the perpetrator was the first made through the use of this technique. And this was William Earl Talbot, the second from the SeaTac area. Think Bundy, think Gary Ridgeway. <laughs> someone someone just needs to there? compile this for for this area because it's just a it's a huge producer of serial killers. He was found guilty of first degree murder and sentenced to two life sentences. Talbot was only 24 at the time of the murders, and he continued his life as a trucker with barely a mark on his record other than a required anger management course. He never made it onto the police suspects list. Hmm. So how exactly did they catch him? Hmm. Well, let me tell you. (laughs) Please do. Sketches of the culprit at ages 25, 45, and 65 were released to the public in April of 2018 after using a technology called phenotyping. Phenotyping is used to possibly predict a person's appearance based on DNA. So when you see missing persons or... Yes, uh, I've seen the drawings. can't think of words. Yeah, so they try to advance it so that way, like a kid who has gone missing, they try to show you what they would look like 12 years yes. later. Age progression. I think that's what it's called. The Snohomish County Sheriff's Office had from the DNA evidence collected from Tanya's body, and that's what they were able to use to uh, kind of put these sketches together. And while Talbot bore some resemblance to the sketch, it wasn't a perfect match. Paraben Nano Labs, which is the company responsible for producing the photo from phenotyping, also found near matches in a database of DNA from public sites. And Talbot was put under surveillance, and a paper cup became his downfall. Watch what you touch, folks. But we're, we're purely happy that you do, especially if you are out there serial raping or murdering people. Yep. Touch away. And while Talbot is not being investigated for other crimes, detectives are still investigating his whereabouts and activities from 1987 to 1988. From the Herald Net in Everett, Washington, if anyone at the time may have seen Talbot or if you know about the story, especially for our listeners, if you know anything about this and saw Talbot with a blue blanket or a 35mm Minolta X700 camera, please call the following number, 425-388-3845. And if you're looking to hear some more awesome podcasts like ours, especially about forensic genealogy, give Bear Brook a try. And these were the murders committed by Terry Rasmussen. It's the case that Paul Holes learned just how this technique could work. And just last week, our friends Paul Holes and Billy Jensen, the Murder Squad podcast, which you may have listened to, who are both intrinsically tied to Michelle's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, they encouraged their listeners in this podcast to help work on cold cases. And they had their first case solved. Yay! And so this is how it was solved. So one of their podcast listeners who had been listening from day one, her name is Jessie, she took that step, listened to Paul, listened to Billy, and she uploaded her DNA to GEDmatch. And the police were able to connect DNA collected from a 1980 cold case murder of Helene Przyski to the alleged murderer. This was a slam dunk. And you can listen to the full story at the Murder Squad. So congratulations, guys, and Jesse. Thank you for submitting your DNA. And yay! This is a real win for the good guys. Paul Holes, Billy Jensen, thank you for reminding people and using your platform to tell people to do this. And I think we'll see more and more people do that as we move along, especially in this era of being able to use this technology. 
And then we also have Dr. Barbara Ray Vetner, who's one of Time's most influential people of 2019. She's now the director of Gene to Gene's new investigative genealogy unit. And we know Gene by Gene by another name, which is Family Tree DNA. And this is the company that markets DNA kits to consumers. It was the first to be able to match someone seeking familial DNA connections, for example, adoptees, um, kids who are adopted looking for their parents. And Dr. Ray Vetter said that Gene to Gene's new unit's willingness to work with law enforcement to help solve the most violent of crimes through crime scene DNA matching takes great corporate courage. I am honored to be part of the Gene by Gene team as we forge the future for investigative genetic genealogy and a safer society. Fun fact. Fun fact. Barbara Ray Ventner is the genetic genealogist that Paul Hall's worked with on the Golden State Killer case. That is a fun fact. One organization that Tara and I fully support is the DNA Doe Project. Founded in 2017, the DNA Doe Project endeavors to bring cold cases, that is, bodies left unidentified for decades, to be identified using new DNA technology and procedures. Their goal is to reunite the missing and lost with their families, and they've been successful. Recently, a 37-year-old mystery of a young woman called Buckskin Girl was solved, and Buckskin Girl has a name. She is Marcia L. King, and she's been reunited with her family. Any money donated to this organization goes to agencies who need help funding the lab work required to process these cases. The DNA Doe Project is completely volunteer, so if you're in a position to give and support the project, the information is on our Murder Shelf Book Club blog. You can also opt to upload your DNA profile to GEDmatch. I have. This is such a worthy cause, as everyone who's into true crime knows. Now, the part we've all been waiting for. Who is Joseph James D'Angelo Jr.? And how did the profiles stack up? Drum roll. On November 20th, 1941, Joseph James D'Angelo Sr. and Kathleen DeCroat were married by Reverend Joseph McDaniel of the Elmwood Baptist Church in Elmira Heights, New York which is located just south of Syracuse, just north on the border with Pennsylvania. And a few weeks later, Japan would attack Pearl Harbor, and the United States would be formally involved in World War II. Joe Sr. would join the Army Air Force being a flyer. He was awarded seven clusters of the Air Medal for Meditorious Achievement, and his unit, the 15th Army Air Force Unit, holds a presidential citation for low-level attacks on Leotsky oil fields in Romania, according to the local Star Gazette newspaper. Jones Sr. had been wounded in action over Australia in March of 1944, and he returned to the United States, where he and Kathleen resumed their marriage, living in Bath with 17-month-old daughter Rebecca. So two, Becky. two things here. We've read a couple books in our True Crime Book Club, mm-hmm. and it's disturbing how many come from the central western New York area, especially since I hail from there. Ah, the hometown, huh? Yeah. This cuts close to home, Hillside Stranglers, Rochester, and then Arthur Shawcross, Rochester. Yes, absolutely. And I guess the second thing, your choice of word resumed their marriage. Well, if he left in 1941, and now he's back in 1944, not uncommon during World War II. There's some people who literally didn't see their spouses until the war ended in August 45, so it's just kind of resuming. Yeah, that's true, I guess. I guess I didn't really think about that. Maybe I just think too much about the psychology of some of our serial killers and how spotty some of their families can be when they're young that produces someone like Golden State Killer. Well, spotty is a good word for it, and we will get to that part of the story. 
1945, Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. is born on November 8th. And then he's going to have two more siblings, Constance, called Connie, and John. His dad opted to remain in the Air Force, Master Sergeant D'Angelo. He winds up moving his family quite often, as military families are given to doing. He lives in the United States and Europe. According to D'Angelo's nephew, Jesse Ryland, whose mother is Joe's sister, Connie, Connie was raped by two airmen when they were in Germany when she was about seven years old. And Joe Jr. witnessed this when he was a kid, nine or ten years old. Their parents' reaction to this whole thing was, forget about it, it never happened, just move on. Connie's ex-husband, Kenneth Ryland, told a reporter in 2018 that Connie had never told him about the rape. He learned about it from their son, Jesse, which is strange. While this certainly does fit with that fundamentally traumatic event that may have contributed to the beginning of that rape-violent sex fantasy that will later be part of the Golden State Killer's mentality, witness your seven-year-old sister being raped and violated and no one in the family discusses it afterward. And I know we talk a lot about the 70s and people not talking about this kind of thing, but I guess you could almost even extend that just back into the 60s and 50s, like, I guess, the war years. Mm-hmm. It wasn't commonly talked about at all. Or maybe just military families in general. Well, violence wasn't talked about. World War II vets didn't talk about their experiences until much later Mm -hmm. either. These were just not subjects that you talked about in polite company. So maybe more military as opposed to the era? I think it's across the spectrum. Okay. Now imagine if Joe Jr. was aroused by what he saw and perhaps felt ashamed and then twisted it somehow into blaming his sister or his mother. Because all of this is getting twisted around into someone who becomes a serial rapist and murderer. As explained in Man in the Window, which is a phenomenal podcast on this, a childhood friend of Joe Jr., her name is Judy, described Joe as lonely, with parents who were really missing in action emotionally. And I think that goes with exactly what we've been talking Mm -hmm. about. He was the one who made sure that his brother and sisters were up and dressed, and he even did laundry. Joe seemed to rely on an emotional bond with Judy's large family, not really his own family, and that kind of fits with the profile. Surrounded with siblings and friends, he was still not emotionally fulfilled, and that rounds out another part of the profile. Judy had a lot of fond memories of Joe Jr., despite who he turned out to be, and explained that he used to take some of her brothers along to go out to the movies and in his muscle cars. He didn't get angry, but if someone dropped a piece of popcorn in his car, he'd pick it up and dispose of it immediately. Meticulous. Orderly. Even back then. Even with kids riding around in his muscle cars. Mm-hmm. Nephew Jesse Ryland also said on the record, that Joe Sr. physically assaulted his wife Kathleen, and that Kathleen herself abused the children. Connie told Jesse that she used to wear two pairs of pants to cushion the blows. So clearly, this was a dysfunctional family, and this is the environment that Joe Jr. was raised in as a child. So, profile, check, abusive dysfunctional family, check. In Exeter, California, at Mills Junior High School in Rancho Cordova, Joe Jr. was a JV baseball player and then went on to attend Folsom High School. So he did join a group sport there. He did have that interaction. After his dad returned from the deployment to South Korea, his mom announced that she was seeing someone else and his parents were going to wind up divorcing. Joe would quit high school before graduating, get his GED, and then go and join the Navy. Now, this is 1964, the year his sister Connie marries Kenny Ryland. 
and he is going to head off to Vietnam. Kathleen, his mother, goes on to marry Jack Osanko and moves the family to Auburn, California. She's going to become a very popular waitress. His stepfather, Jack, builds a ranch for everyone to live in. Joe Sr. winds up in South Korea, gets married, and has three more children. And fun fact here, all of the children that he had with his new wife were given the exact same names as his previous children, Rebecca, Joe Jr., and Constance. How creepy weird is that? I wish we knew more about that one. I well, wish we did. I don't know. In my family, though, when my mother would get excited and start calling names, she'd go through all of our names before, before she got the right one. Yeah. So this way, he didn't have to learn new names. I guess. I guess that's right. But it's still weird. It's still creepy. Especially, I don't know if we know if he still kept up correspondence with his. I couldn't old find family. anything out about his dad. Maybe it was just so that way he could remember it, or he decided to just forget about the fact that he had a family and just started a freshie. Uh, it has been known to happen. Okay. Okay, so Joe Jr. joins the Navy. He winds up serving 22 months uh, aboard the USS Canberra as a mechanic, does receive medals for the service, and he later starts bragging of a combat injury to his finger. Evidently, he said a bullet had whizzed past him while he was in the Mekong Delta. However, this is a lie. This is an embellishment because this is not a combat injury. It was caused by an accident. They were setting depth charges, and a slider was moving faster than Joe moved, and it sliced off a part of his ring finger, as Judy revealed in Man in the Window. You really need to listen to yeah. It goes in far more detail on Joe than we can here. This was something that we recently found out about, too, and I don't know if they have pictures of his hands, but I'm just wondering how prominent this was. I guess you wouldn't really notice if you're not getting a good look at his hands while he's committing his rapes against you. But I'm wondering if it was prominent enough that nobody would have noticed or they would have noticed. Because I don't think there's anything they spoke about that. Well, a lot of them were blindfolded. Yeah. And he shined the light in their eyes. And he wore gloves. So I think all of this masked what was going on there. I think it was all designed to keep his identity unknown. Yeah. Yeah. Even early on here, Joe was showing signs of being very egotistical self-serving, exaggerating, which to me is a sign of personal insecurity. Mm -hmm. When you have to claim, oh, it's a combat injury instead of, yeah, I was just an idiot and didn't move my finger back. I almost feel like it might have not even been either. (laughs) Well, spot on profile. But now that we know he was in the military, there's two big things that we need to talk about here. Mm -hmm. And the first, there's a ton of speculation that he's in the military or possibly with law enforcement. And now we know he's in both. Both. Yeah, all signs point to yes, and that was absolutely correct. We've said this extensively, but Joseph D'Angelo was a police officer in Exeter when the burglaries attributed to the Vizali ransacker started. Paul Holes, the former investigator with Contra Costa County Sheriff's Department, has said that this guy did his crime well, but he had no special training. He had a plan, he stuck to it, and he got very, very good at it. What we did find out through articles and Man in the Window is D'Angelo was actually part of the burglary unit when he was in the Exeter Police Department. I don't necessarily know if they teach you how to burgle, but maybe you might pick up something. I don't know. He would certainly know, since he's investigating burglaries, what the investigators are looking for. So don't give them that. It's just completely ironic. And then he also transfers from Exeter Police Department to Auburn PD in 1976, roughly Visalia to East Bay, Sacramento area. And three months after this transfer was when the rapes began. They did read somewhere, I think it was a Sacramento Bee article, it was regarding the transfer, 
It was a quote. Exeter Police Chief John Hall said his department has few records left from the 1970s. And there's actually no formal record of when D'Angelo was hired, when he left, or why. At this time where we have talked about everyone, even Michelle Paul Hole, something must have been going on during that period. We almost can't even look back at his career to figure that out. Hall said he only knows D'Angelo worked there because the new recruit, D'Angelo, was quoted in the local newspaper in 73 and because one retired Exeter officer remembered him. And then he was fired from Auburn PD in 1979, which we'll pick up on later on in our biography of Joe. So post-Navy 1968, Joe returns to California. And in August, he begins Sierra College, where he's going to ultimately graduate with his associate's degree in police science. Enter Bonnie Caldwell. She's five years younger. She's studying nursing. That is Bonnie. Ooh, I hate Bonnie. That is the Bonnie we've mentioned. She's described him as stocky, not overweight, with a restless energy, always in motion. So when I described him as tapping, drumming his fingers, you know, on the desk, I I think that was Mm -hmm. an accurate description. Now, Bonnie and Joe begin dating. They enjoy outside activities, shooting, fishing, riding his motorcycle. I think he'd be into what we call extreme sports today. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I see him totally involved in that. Um, enjoying the challenge and the fear while Bonnie is experiencing sheer terror. He's enjoying Bonnie's large family, much as he did Judy's. And I think they're filling a real painful hole in his heart. Bonnie loses her virginity to Joe. And she said that he had taught him to only partially ejaculate during sex so that he would be ready to go sometimes five or six times in a night and that this was painful for her. Now, this should have really been a pleasant experience and it became an excruciating exercise of endurance. That's not how I'd want to be having sex with my fiance. No, it's very odd. You would think that maybe he might be concerned if she's having some... Excruciating pain? Yeah. I think she may have been trying to hide it, even during the time she probably didn't want him to know, but then he didn't bother to ask. Well, if you're a sexual sadist and narcissist and only concerned about yourself and satisfying your inner demons and she's just a prop, you might not notice. Yeah. Yeah. There's one guy, I think it was Wade Nance, he said that women were an appliance, and that's all they were. That's a real good description of, of Joe D'Angelo's mindset. Yeah. It really works. Nance is another serial killer. Well, anyway, after eight months together, Joe proposes and Bonnie accepts. And her motivation was more as kind of getting out of her parents' house, I think, than looking forward to marriage with Joe. Yeah. Think that's fair? Yeah, she, um, from what I understand, she didn't really get along with her dad very well. I think he was a teacher, and he had just varying thoughts on women's roles in general. Bonnie had wanted to even go to school to be a doctor, but she settled on nursing because that was more of a a female role back in the day, I guess. That was more acceptable. Yeah, so she didn't get along well with her father. So I think it's more of a house exit proposal strategy that she's accepting. I said that he was more likely to be married at a certain age. We call that age grading, that there's an expectation that by certain ages, certain milestones are reached. Confirmation takes place at 13 Mm -hmm. and bar mitzvahs at 13. And then by such and such an age, 23, the male should be married. I'm an old maid compared to the 70s. Jeez. (laughs) 
you're getting married really in your early 20s. So certainly mm-hmm. by 25 or so, yeah, you should be married. And remember, now this is the second woman that Joe has proposed to. There was an earlier girl he knew when he was 18 and proposed to, and she turned him down flat. He will eventually settle down with Sharon Huddle, who is 20, to Joe's 27. And we do notice that the women that he chooses to date and ultimately propose to are actually younger. We get this sense sense of control that he is possibly trying to exert over these women, too. Mm-hmm. Bonnie notes that Joe D'Angelo delights in her terror when he's doing these riding on the back of the motorcycle. Downhill. Downhill real fast. (laughs) That he really seemed to delight in that. And that was one of the things that you mentioned a lot, especially in terms of like the thrill of it and getting away with it. Oh, right. And Bonnie says that he didn't believe in rules. So when they went hunting or fishing, he never got a hunting license, never got a fishing license. It was more poaching than hunting. Exactly. If he said no trespassing, he jumped the fence. Oh, jumping fences. That's there He had a lot of practice. Yeah. The jumping fences. As time went by, her uncertainty really became insurmountable when it came to the final on their abnormal psych exam. Joe was not doing well. She was. And he wanted her to help him cheat. And she said no. No, I am absolutely not going to help you cheat on this exam. No. And he really persisted and wouldn't let it go. And she's, no, I'm not going to help you cheat. I'm not going to do that. That's wrong. I'm not going to do it. And he really persisted. Finally, she's going to break off their engagement, realizing that this is all about control. This is not about a test. And that they are just not right for each other. The risk-taking, the rule-breaking, the cheating... She's not compatible with Joe D'Angelo. They're just not right for each other. So she breaks off with him. Angry, Joe leaves. As he's leaving Bonnie's home, he tosses his arm to the side. And Bonnie thinks that she's thrown her engagement ring off into the grass, as if it's just trash and it doesn't mean anything to him. She and the other family members come out, and they're searching and searching and searching. And she finally realizes he really hadn't thrown it away. Again, he's just pulling their strings and exerting this last bit of control over her family. Now, it doesn't end there. And we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier. Yeah, so a week or so later, after Bonnie's rejection, she gets this knock, knock, knock on the window, middle of the night, and there's Joe with a gun pointed at her. And guess what? Get dressed. We're going to get married in Reno. Hurry up. Now, again, Bonnie doesn't have the greatest relationship with her dad, but I think like any girl, she goes to dad and says, hey, dad, Joe's got a gun. So dad goes out, and I guess they have a conversation. Bonnie locks herself in the bathroom. Dad manages to defuse the situation, comes in, tells Bonnie to go back to bed. Once again, they never talked about what happens. And what, what really drives me bananas here, especially with her dad, I know they don't have a good relationship. He basically said, I'm going to go talk to Joe because if we call the cops, that's basically going to end any future career he might have in law enforcement. Yep. Considering that a guy is trying to kidnap your daughter. At gunpoint. And force her into marriage. At gunpoint. Oh, hey, Joe. Let's let's not do this now. Uh. And ironically, while they never talk about it, Bonnie nor her father tell anyone else in the family. They're the only two that know about this, other than Joe, obviously. Keeping secrets, mm-hmm. even in the family. So 70s. And 60s and 50s. And all the time. <laughs> yeah. 
Paul Holes had speculated that Golden State Killer was well-educated and probably had received a bachelor's degree from Sac State. And, of course, he was correct. D'Angelo did go to Sac State uh, in 1971. He did earn his bachelor's degree in criminal justice. Postgraduate work he did at Kings County Public Safety Academy, which was 32 weeks as a police intern. That's how he wound up being hired by Exeter Police Department. And he will meet and marry Sharon Marie Huddle on November 19th, 1973, one day shy of the 32nd anniversary of his own parents' marriage. That's cute. Well, if they had stayed (laughs) married, it would have been anyway. (laughs) And he begins his role in the burglary unit from 1973 to 1976 while he's the Visalia ransacker. So yes, yes, he's he's investigating robberies when he's committing them a few miles away in Visalia. That's brazen. Then he's also leaving his pants everywhere too. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I get it. And remember, he's posing women's underwear. Oh yes. Yeah. So there's definitely a sexual element going on here. So in 1976, this is when he transfers to the larger Auburn Police Department. The Visalia ransacking ceases. And the East Area Rapist emerges, starting to rape in East Sacramento County through the latter 70s. Dot, dot, dot. Joe and Sharon buy a home, he, and he invites the chief of the Auburn Police Department, Nick Willick, over to see it. And Willick notices something a little odd, that the couple sleep in separate bedrooms. Now, they're only in their 30s. That's pretty odd. So it's a little unusual for a married couple in their 30s to have separate bedrooms. This could possibly explain some of the time that he's not accounted for. It's definitely weird. And if you are out raping in the middle of the night and you have separate bedrooms, your wife wouldn't be missing you, would she? No, and he's probably just climbing out of the window and not really going out the front door, too. Could see it. Chief Willick also tells us that Joe's nickname was Junk Food Joey. I guess that lends to the stocky image that they had. Trying to piece together some of the descriptions was varying, where he literally went from a schoolboy to a stocky person. So I'm wondering if he just ate a lot of junk food during this time. Now, in August 1979, Joe D'Angelo, the cop that some of his colleagues thought with his education should be working for the FBI, is caught shoplifting dog repellent and a hammer from the local pay-and-save drugstore. Wouldn't it just been easier to just buy it? You're a cop. Just buy it. Wait. When caught, he had to be wrestled and tied up in a chair and held for the police. So the rage is evident. Yeah, it's definitely there. Now, his brother-in-law asks him, Joe, face it, this is dumb. Why did you do that? Joe's only comment on it ever was, because I could. His stealing things is not about the items. Though here, I wonder a little bit. And I know Bonnie had talked about how when he was arrested and made the local papers, her dad went to go support him because he felt that Joe needed a friend. I don't think I would have gotten along with Bonnie's dad. I don't think so either. Now, this, of course, is firing made the local newspapers. And Paul Hose would read these articles 39 years later. This is how he will regard a lot of the behavior of Joe D'Angelo. And he is a much more serious candidate to be the Golden State Killer. So Paul Holes told me that once they've learned of D'Angelo's name via the familiar DNA, and they found these old newspaper articles on him, and they saw what he'd stolen from the store and was fired, and that he had not answered any of the investigators 
nor did he request an administrative hearing, Paul recognized how significant this was. And on speaking to retired Chief Nick Willick, Paul learned that the chief went to D'Angelo's house as part of the shoplifting investigation. And what did he find inside? All kinds of stolen property. That's Power tools and sealed boxes. So again, he's stealing for the thrill of it, not because he needed a power tool to go fix something. And once he was caught, crap, he didn't want to bring any more attention to himself. He was the Visalia ransacker and ear. So you're going to fire me? That's all? Okay, fine. Fire me. The last thing Joe and D'Angelo wanted them to do was start looking into him in any more detail. Oh, definitely. He had a lot to lose. So meanwhile, in October 1979, an attack in Goleta is botched badly by a perpetrator, which is then followed by the series of murders that we know well and are connected to the Golden State Killer. Two in 1979, four in 1980, three in 1981, and one in 1986. So in September of 1981, Joe and Sharon have their first daughter. In 82, Sharon graduates from McGeorge School of Law, and she begins to practice law, and she becomes a family and divorce lawyer. And in November 1986, the D'Angelo's welcome their second daughter. In May 1989, Sharon gives birth to their third and final child, another daughter, and Joe takes a job at Save Mart as a mechanic, and he'll retire from there in 2017. In 1991, Sharon and Joe separate. Sharon moves to a home in Roseville, which is near a law practice, but she actually never files for divorce until February 2019. And that's after he's arrested as the Golden State Killer. Exactly. Huh. Yeah, that decision to not file for divorce all those years has really been a source of great speculation. I did hear it had something to do with health insurance. Who knows? Um, While most of his employment history isn't really known in the 80s after he's let go from the police department, you know he does have skills as a mechanic from being a mechanic in the Navy. Exactly. He was actually arrested, so this would be his second arrest, um, in 1996 over an incident at a gas station, and the charges were dismissed. So it's really funny. Joe's living in Citrus Heights. He has neighbors. If you look at some of the police footage from the FBI cops taking things out of his home, you'll notice how tight some of those houses are together. And again, these are similar to areas that he's ransacking, raping, killing. Very similar neighborhoods. Yeah. (laughs) One of the families that lives next to him, a lot of these people call him Crazy Joe. They hear him talking to himself in his backyard, yelling and cursing, sometimes at his daughter, sometimes at no one. and then also. Not just the profile, by the way. It does. But he's also yelling at the aliens in his attic. Yeah. Just just yelling, crazy Joe. I'm just wondering what would have happened if they didn't catch him. I mean, is he falling apart, especially with the ranting and the raving? I don't know. Essentially, April 25th, 2018, the big day, Joseph James D'Angelo is arrested after his DNA was a perfect match for Eron's. One of the most interesting parts of this especially when we talk about the geo profile, where we know Joseph James D'Angelo actually lived. He lived well outside the buffer zone in the attack areas. One of the things that's actually very interesting is a lot of these crimes were committed close to Bonnie's known residence. He probably avoided attacking too close to her house for fear of maybe being named by her or his Um, behaviors and how she might know him from their engagement. 
um, just from being identified as, like Jill has said, he wanted to protect his identity at all costs, Mm -hmm. especially with his closet full of ski masks, gloves, you name it. But it just seems weird that the first 20 attacks, he actually struck eight times within two miles of Bonnie's residence, and then five of those eight attacks within a mile of her residence, and the closest half mile. And this is all stuff that's coming out now. Obviously, we didn't know, but it would seem that with the I hate you, Bonnie, he's almost making her the anchor point. That would be one heck of a coincidence. I would love him to just talk. I love him to talk. Wow. We'll get to that in a minute. One more Paul Hole story. Yes, I hope you're not tiring of my Paul Hole <laughs> stories. I mean, she's incredibly lucky to have had this conversation. I mean, didn't you just sidle up to him at a bar in CrimeCon? And- I've told him at two CrimeCons okay. and then at another one of the festivals. And he was sitting on the stage by himself, and I just kind of hustled up. And I was like, hi, Paul <laughs> Very personable, <laughs> sweet man. Just terrific guy. This is what he told us at CrimeCon. He assured us that the Joseph D'Angelo that you see in court, you know, in the wheelchair, looking frail and confused at 72. He looks so confused in his mugshot. That is not the Joseph D'Angelo who was riding his motorcycle at 100 miles an hour the weekend before he was arrested. This is a physically capable guy. He's had numerous registered guns in his house with lots of targets from the shooting range. This guy is keeping up his skills. And this is one deadly, dangerous man. After his arrest, he was non-responsive for the entire seven hours that Paul observed him. And he could see the wheels turning. D'Angelo is the ultimate tactician. He was deploying his defense strategy right before Paul's eyes. He knew he'd never get out, but he could minimize what was going to happen to him down the road. So you know that self-preservation strategy? It's still working. He is employing these behaviors to get leniency and nothing more. Do not believe it for a second. This is a vicious killer. And what is one of the most troubling things, It's it seriously hurts my brain. It's going to make it a lot more difficult to get D'Angelo's cooperation is the fact that California Governor Gavin Newsom has actually put a moratorium on the death penalty in California. Right now, as we're trying to get him to talk and maybe confess. For those of you who don't know a lot about Ted Bundy, he talked like a canary when he thought that he might be able to escape death. But I think that was one of the things that scared Bundy the most was actually dying and not be able to grace us with his presence on this earth. Yes. He tried to be the all-knowing attorney, handle his own negotiations, and got sentenced to death. Instead of what happens quite often, or did happen quite often in today's world, is that you work through your attorney with the prosecution, and you say, all right, I will talk, I will tell you what happened, you take the death penalty off the table. And I think that's kind of what happened with Kenneth Bianchi, one of the Hillside Stranglers. He committed two murders in Washington, which was stupid on his part because it was the he, first time he did a crime without Angelo won't know with him. Yeah. And it, he was I no brain. Yeah. He was, he was definitely not the brains of that outfit, but um, he basically negotiated to get out of the death penalty and to actually move back, I think to a prison in California. So that way he wouldn't have to stay in Washington. Yes. There's something about Washington that he just did not want to be there. Nope. Not his place. 
All right. What is Governor Newsom up to? Well, his office cited the cost, the finality, the racial imbalance among death row inmates, making the punishment immoral and a public policy failure. Here are the facts. About 60% of California's death row inmates are people of color, and a number of studies have shown that those convicted of killing a white person are far more likely to face execution than those who kill African Americans and Latinos. Newsom cited the fact that many of those executed in the past year nationwide have had mental impairments. Over the past 45 years, 164 death row inmates have later been found innocent of their crimes and released. And five of those cases occurred in California. That's a small number, though, out of 164. It it is. But I guess that possibility has been enough to make him Oh, absolutely. Uh, Okay, at least we know the numbers, though. Um, Governor Newsom did suspend using an executive order. And this granted a reprieve to 737 death penalty inmates, which is about 25% of the nation's death row inmates. The last time California carried out an execution was in 2006, when Clarence Ray Allen, a 76-year-old diabetic convicted two decades earlier of a triple murder, was put to death. So you can see this appeal process is really ridiculously slow. They, They need to figure something out. 25 inmates have currently exhausted all of their appeals. So California voters have chosen to retain capital punishment, which is in direct opposition of the moratorium. They rejected a 2016 state ballot measure to abolish it. The voters rejected this, meaning that they wish to keep it. Back in 1972, the Supreme Court declared the death penalty to be unconstitutional and that it violated the Eighth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, so cruel and unusual punishment. But in 1976, after determining that 66% of the American public were in favor of the death penalty, the death penalty was reinstated. However, when they did reinstate the death penalty, it meant that they were not only allowing an appeals process and a couple other stipulations, but they were also granting states to go with whatever measure they decided. Certain states decided to keep the death penalty. Some decided not to. We have lethal injection, firing squad, electric chair. I don't think the electric chair is used as much or if at all anymore. So we can see that there is overwhelming popularity of the death penalty, especially or at least American voters do want to keep it and have it imposed for more heinous crimes. UC Berkeley Institute for Governmental Studies poll said that 52% of Californians back Newsom and 48% oppose, but 61% want to keep the death penalty for possible punishment of serious crimes, and 39% want it abolished completely. Sounds like California has to do some legislating and overhaul their death penalty. They need to get it together a little bit. And I think people just need to kind of understand that it's not like we want to execute everybody. But I mean, when you think of somebody like Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, who tormented, terrorized, raped, and murdered for a decade, and we didn't know who this guy was for 40-something years. Yeah, and made phone calls to psychologically torture their victims 20 years later. I'm sorry, this is somewhat even that I would... Death penalty candidate. There's no question in my mind. Absolutely. Not every murderer is a death penalty candidate, and I think people can reasonably make those decisions. Mm -hmm. You would think so. I think so. 
Uh, in, in an article from the Los Angeles Times, it was said a majority of voters surveyed, however, did not support permanently abolishing the death penalty, probably because of awareness of slaying suspect Joseph Dames D'Angelo Jr., charged with killing 13 people and accused of raping more than 50 in the Golden State Killer case. Ding, ding, ding. So what we just said. Yeah. How many serial murder cases come to some deal where the serial killer agrees to confess and to tell people what happened to their loved ones to locate bodies, and they agree to take the death penalty off the table? It may be super tough to do this, but if we had a loved one missing, lost, or we never knew what happened, just having that closure, we would want that leverage to be on the table to get somebody like Joseph D'Angelo, who's highly intelligent, obviously, cunning, devious, to admit to this. Obviously, he knows the system. He is a police officer. He's smart. And he knows what he's doing he's in terms of playing the system. Right now. He is putting on a show. And governors in Pennsylvania and Oregon, and we're, in, we're Philadelphia-based, have announced their own moratoriums on the death penalty. And Washington State has actually been under a similar moratorium. And last year, its Supreme Court struck down the death penalty saying that it's arbitrary and racially biased. We don't support anything that is arbitrary and racially biased, and I don't think that the death penalty is that. It shouldn't be. It definitely shouldn't so, be. legislatures, do your job. All right, as a final point, and I'm going to drum this home, over 200 cold cases have been solved by using genetic genealogy since the Golden State Killer was arrested in 2018. The law is changing to catch up with this technology while protecting our privacy rights. And if you upload your DNA to companies such as 23andMe or Ancestry, and then upload it to a public company such as GEDmatch or Family Tree DNA, with the hope that you are helping law enforcement close a case, you have to go back to GEDmatch or Family Tree DNA and consciously opt in, or you won't be able to help. Law enforcement doesn't automatically get to generate familial DNA matches anymore. You have to go back and opt in. This technology has helped remove criminals from our streets and prevented new crimes while solving these old ones. We know this can be expensive, but if you want to do some good and a potential way to give back, you'll not only find out a lot about yourself, your history, but you also may be able to solve a case. Ask for your kit for a birthday present. Mother's Day. Valentine's Day is coming up. As Billy Jensen said in his Rolling Stones interview, people want to take the extra step and do some good. With this true crime explosion that's happened, there's people that also want to be part of it and help in some way. And I think this is one of the best ways to help. Tara and I agree. Opt in. Go back. Check that box. And that's our wrap-up of The Golden State Killer, as told through the eyes and the voice of Michelle McNamara and I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Now, join us in a few weeks as we review The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Kara Robertson. Follow us up on Facebook or Instagram at Murder Shelf Book Club, and like us and tell your friends. And whenever you're listening, if you're able, please give us a review. We want to hear from you. Send us your questions. We want to be able to answer them and talk about what you're thinking. Subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. There's sure to be a scream. Yes, we went there. <laughs> we also felt it was important to end with the note on the National Sexual Assault Telephone Hotline. If you or anyone that you know has been sexually assaulted, please call 1-800-656-4673.
online chat is also available. So if you need help or you need somebody to talk to, please do.